as everyone knows, timing is everything. So with that said, I really wanted to create an authentic product, something that people, you know, can resonate with the actual authentic espresso martini or however they envision that experience. So using natural ingredients, vodka based, six times distilled vodka, very important, no malt, no wine, nothing alternative, straight vodka, real espresso, all natural ingredients. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I am very honored to have with me today Taylor Grant, who is the founder and general partner of Cedar Capital, and also is the founder and CEO of Tribini, which I'm going to let him tell you about because it's a really exciting brand. And I think that the stuff that we're going to talk about is going to be interesting because you've got two different things going on that are incredibly related. So welcome to the podcast, Taylor. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Really yeah. appreciate it and have been a huge fan of the episodes that you've put on so far. So it's awesome to be here. Well, thank you. Well, it's going to be great to have you as part of the roster. So why don't you give us a little background on you first, and then we can get into the companies. Sure. So I grew up in the Philadelphia area, went to school in Boston, You know, went to school for finance and was in asset management for my whole career equities research, product management, product development, working for mid to large asset managers. But I started angel investing in food and beverage and CPG back in 2015 when some friends of mine started a company and you know just asked for my opinion. And I was like, I'll invest. And then started working with them, helping them solve problems and kind of caught the bug. So I continued to write personal checks from there on out into other CPG brands. I really fell in love with the industry. And people always ask me why I like food and beverage and CPG so much versus tech or software or marketplaces, because it's tangible. It's something that's a part of everyday life. It's something that people get a lot of joy out of. And when you find something really compelling you know, in that space with a new product or a new company, people get really excited about it. And, you know, it's really rampant, you know, when a consumer or a group of consumers get hooked on a cool new product or company that they find in the grocery store or online. I'm curious about something you said, because I think this is what happens to people, but I've never heard anyone say they caught the bug. I think that's really interesting. So talk a little bit about how that felt to you and then where it led you. You know, I think it comes down to, I love solving problems. And, you know, it made me realize that, you know, this side of the business is way more about money. You know, founders and startup teams love investors that can add value or advisors that can add value. So I really strove to become better at that, you know, learn more about everyone's individual vertical or, you know, the challenges that they're facing and get better at that. And I think that's really what's gotten me to where I am today. At the end of 2020, I discovered the world of venture syndicates. It was always kind of in my plan to launch a venture fund one day. And I discovered AngelList and the syndicate model and started following other syndicate leads. Most of AngelList is tech. And I started to notice, wow, there's a real white space here for CPG. There's not a lot of people doing that. I know Catch Ventures is out there and a couple others dabble in CPG, but I was like, this is interesting. I think I could do this. 
So I started to get information from other syndicate leads, learn from them, learn the tricks of the trade. And I went out and launched Cedar Capital at the end of 2020, had good deal flow. I was like, I'm going to knock this out of the park. This is going to be great. And learned very quickly that, you know, in that world, you're not just an investor, but you're also a marketer. And I've really learned over the course of launching Cedar Capital to become a better marketer than I was that day. So it really combines the investment side, the marketing side, and then you're still, you know, responsible for helping the teams that you're investing in. You know, so since then, I've deployed more than $5 million in capital through Cedar Capital. That's on top of my personal investments. And then, you know, that kind of led me towards launching Tribini as well this year, which I've been building for over a year. So I like to stay busy, needless to say, but you know, everything's like all integrated and wrapped into one pretty much. So before we get to Tribini, I want you to talk more about what you said about having to be a marketer. Can you go into that a little bit more and be specific? Yep. You know, when it comes to investing in a syndicate style, you know, SPV, special purpose vehicle, you know, with a fund, you get your limited partners to invest in your fund and they trust you to make and build a diversified portfolio for them with the mandate that you set forth. With syndicates, it's slightly different where not only do you need to find a deal or a company that you believe is a strong investment from your perspective, but you have to figure out what's going to resonate with the LP base that you have, right? And along with that is writing up your deal memos in a way where your LPs understand and what they expect from you so that they're interested in making the investment but also, you know, letting them know along the way, like while you're raising capital for the company, what's going on with the company, making sure you're staying on top of it, make sure you're giving the LPs real-time information to make sure that you're raising enough capital so you can invest in the company in a meaningful way. So that's a perfect transition to you're constantly selling, even though you're not selling, right? You're constantly positioning, selling, figuring out what the right ways to say things are, which leads to now you've got this idea for a brand of your own. And can you talk about how that happened? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's everything kind of happened all at the same time for me. So I fell in love with espresso martinis years ago. You know, me and my friends love them. My family loves them. And I've always said, wow, wouldn't it be great if there was like a mass manufactured version of this that was ready to drink? And we saw the hard seltzer boom happen. COVID-19 accelerated that trend. And then it led to the development of ready-to-drink cocktails, vodka sodas, whiskey sours, gin and tonics, you name it. That really became a real category at the beginning of 2021. And I said, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I think now's the time because I do not want to miss the boat. As everyone knows, timing is everything. So with that said, I really wanted to create an authentic product something that people, you know, can resonate with the actual authentic espresso martini or however they envision that experience. So using natural ingredients, vodka based, six times distilled vodka, very important, no malt, no wine, nothing alternative, straight vodka, real espresso, all natural ingredients. But also it was very important to check off the boxes of what consumers expect in a ready to drink product. So lower calorie, zero sugar, zero fat, low carbs. So really, I spent the time needed to develop that authentic product that also resonated with consumers that purchase ready-to-drink products. Do you have a sweetener that's not that's a zero-calorie sweetener or do you not have a sweetener? Yes. So we use a blend of monk fruit and stevia. Interesting. And, 
And people may say, why do you use both? Well, monk fruit can come off very strong, if mm-hmm. not diluted a little bit. And some people just can't stand the aftertaste of stevia mm-hmm. and monk fruit actually balances out that aftertaste. So we were able to blend a combo of that to where there's zero aftertaste and it's really not overly sweet. It is a drier beverage in general. It's more espresso forward, flavor forward. That's awesome. That's really great. It's interesting that you're blending those because you're right. There are certain people that are like no monk fruit and certain people that are like no stevia for the reasons that you just talked about. So that already feels innovative to me. And I love that, you know, ready to drink is like a tough category, right? I mean, it is, but you definitely have something that's innovative and incredibly on trend right now. So talk about where you are with the brand and where you want to be and how you're going to get there. Yep. So the brand is on the cusp of launching. We will be launching direct to consumer to 32 states on our first day. And the reason why we want to use direct to consumer for our launch is so that we can find product market fit while being efficient with our capital. It's not entirely difficult to get into distribution into a state, but then you're deploying immense amounts of capital into production to be on shelves. And you don't even know if your customers are going to be there, right? So direct-to-consumers had its challenges over the past year, but we still believe it's the best tool, you know, to meet your customers halfway, um, you know, connect with them directly, which is very difficult to do in alcohol, by the way, and, you know, market to them, test things and find product market fit so that when it's time to go into retail, you know, we'll have the data to back that up. We know how to reach our customers. We know who they are and we'll know how to market to them. Yep. Talk about the name. I'm curious how you got to that. How'd you get to Tribini? It completely made up word. (laughs) But you know, when you order an espresso martini at a bar or a restaurant, a good bartender or mixologist will put three espresso beans or coffee beans on top. They stand for health, wealth, and prosperity. So what we did was take tri for three and then beanies, just bean and martini mixed together. Tribini. How do you know that little fact about the three espresso beans, what they mean? So there's a lot of different stories that go around of what it actually means, but the Uh first bartender to actually do that, that's what he claims that it meant. Interesting. So we just kind of rolled with that. Yeah, that's interesting. And so you're going to launch, how far out are you from launch? Weeks away, a few weeks away. And you're going to be totally DTC at first. Yes. However, I can say that we will be launching in New York City Metro very shortly after. Amazing. That's really exciting. Yes. So how are you going about, you know, it's a lot to figure out, obviously, with alcohol, it's, it's just so tricky to even do DTC. So that's interesting. How are you going about figuring out where to launch in brick and mortar and retail? Yep. So, you know, as far as New York goes, it kind of contradicts what I just said as far yeah. as finding your customers. However, with the data and, you know, the tasting events and, you know, the amount of interaction we've had with, you know, potential retail partners, Mm -hmm. New York is a no brainer. It's the most rampant consuming city of espresso martinis. And believe it or not, there is data that backs that up. And then, you know, the other reason for that is that there is a new development in alcohol right now, specifically ready to drink with the on-premise markets. When we started developing Tribini, on-premise wasn't really on our minds at all. Mm -hmm. It was all about off-premise is the way you grow and scale, and that's the way it is. But because of supply chain constraints over the past year, on-premise accounts like bars, venues, restaurants, amphitheaters, you name it, 
don't really want to go out and source the ingredients they need to make cocktails, let alone complex cocktails like espresso martinis. And now you're starting to see RTDs pop up on menus in restaurants. So on-premise is going to be a real market for us. And what a better city to do that in than New York. Yeah, that's interesting. When you launch in New York, will it be a combo of on-premise and retail? It will. That's so cool. Like I said before, off-premise is still the best way to grow and scale, but on-premise is an amazing way to get in front of your customer. Yeah. You want them asking for things on-premise, right? I mean, off-premise. Yes. I mean, I've seen so many brands be built that way. So that's really interesting that you're already thinking about that. You've got sort of two hats that you're wearing. One is theater cap, one is capital and you're raising money for other brands and helping them. And then one is, is Tribini. What are you doing from a raising capital perspective on that front? So I've been raising capital for Tribini over the past few months. So I have slowed down slightly. My deal flow has been a little bit lower. However, my LPs aren't complaining as much because, you know, they're a little bit scared right now anyway. You know, with people talking looming recession, people are clutching their pearls and holding on to their cash. So the timing kind of worked out for me that way. But, yeah. you know, I'm still looking for new opportunities. And, you know, now that I'm an operator in the industry, yeah. I'm meeting more founders than I ever did before when I was just focusing on investments. And, you know, it's bringing up more opportunities that are going to be, you know, pretty ripe for the taking towards the end of this year, the beginning of next year. But as far as right now, you know, still supporting my portfolio founders, you know, the best way I can still making time every week to talk with them, help them solve problems and, you know, getting referrals from them as well for other opportunities as well. Yeah. Are you doing any investing in your own company? Like, are you ready? Uh, yeah. So we just closed our pre-seed round. We may be extending that, but yeah, that's all I can really say about that. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. Talk about the founders you've met and because I think the community of, I wouldn't call you a health and wellness brand, but you're certainly in this, in the new brand, in the food space, food and bev space community. So you're not up against the big guys right now. And I feel like it's a really collaborative, helpful community. Have you found that? Yes, it is. I would say it's a vast difference from coming from the finance and asset management world where it's very cutthroat and a lot of people don't have each other's backs. The founder community in food and beverage and CPG is very helpful and they love to talk to each other to learn more about what they could do better that other founders and teams are doing better. Yeah. I mean, I found that very interesting about that community. But also, you know, I get to know founders on a deeper level because I invest in the pre-seed and seed stage almost exclusively. That's when you really need to qualify a founder, learn more about them and, you know, figure out what, you know, their execution plan is and if they're able to do it. Pre-seed stage is the highest risk you could possibly take in the stack when you're investing in a company. So, you know, you really need to feel out the founder to know if, you know, they're going to be able to execute and grow this company and get to the next level. So what have you learned from other founders and from vetting founders and vetting brands and vetting companies that you're putting into practice for your own brand? Yeah. So this may be a little bit more philosophical, but with how many founders I've spoken to, the majority are either dreamers or doers, right? And dreamers, I'm not saying dreamers can't be successful. Some dreamers can, but I've noticed that the doers they tend to be way more successful and get to the next stage uh, the way they planned. And, you know, I've realized that, you know, sometimes you meet 
a combo of both a dreamer and a doer together. And that's really where you can generate asymmetric returns if their product and their plan is sound as well. So on that note, you know, I consider myself a doer, but I've learned to become a little bit of a dreamer as well, talking to some of these founders. Yeah. I think you have to, in some ways, because you are going to come up against obstacles that you can't necessarily fix. And if you have the I know this can work because I've seen it in my brain. You know, I visualize it and I get it and I know that I have a vision for it. I think you need a little bit of that or a partner who has that. Right. 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 And, you know, the other thing I've learned really well is that the network is everything. You almost need someone for something at some point in your company life cycle. And you make mental notes or physical notes of who to go to for those certain resources And that's been a blessing for me starting my own company because I've got the Rolodex of everyone who I need for any possible situation or capability that I need to implement for my own company. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit. Like, what are you doing from that perspective? You have partners in in Tribini, right? Yes. And do you guys complement each other in any way or is it like, talk about the partnership? Yes. I really can't talk about that yet because they're not. Okay. 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 That's okay. Can you talk about the skill sets? Do you have complementary skill sets? Are you? Yes. So, you know, for me, I've been in the startup world a lot. My partners have not. My partners have strong marketing and digital marketing backgrounds. So that really complements me well, because I know what a startup needs to do to execute and to plan and to strategize. I know how to put everything together but I don't have much of a marketing background when it comes to direct to consumer or, you know, off-premise or on-premise alcohol. So, you know, that was the biggest missing hole. And, you know, my team makes up for that big. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. And so when you think about how you're going to launch the brand, how did you go about creating the logo and the design and all the things that are foundational and so important when you're out pitching yourself? Yeah. I mean, the brand kind of speaks for itself when you see it. It's Mm -hmm. very different from anything you've seen that's coffee-based. You know, coffee-based products are so used to using the blacks and the browns and, you know, literal colors and imagery. And we wanted to be completely different. We wanted to kind of present the lifestyle. So deep, rich colors that resemble, you know, an environment where you may be drinking an espresso martini, like a cocktail lounge. So we've got the dark greens, we've got the dark reds and oranges, we've got a lot of gold. And the gold really is, it stands for the aspirational voice that our brand has. Espresso martinis are an expensive aspirational product. But you want to make it clear like that this is, you know, an accessible version of that. So you can get aspiration at, you know, a more accessible price. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And what have you learned things along the way that you're putting into practice now, aside from some of the stuff we already talked about, like you're launching a brand, you've been an investor. What would you tell other people who are getting ready to launch a brand or in the early stages of raising capital? What are the most like critical things that they need to know? So for a founder that's just starting, I would say be patient. Everyone wants to move fast, which is fine. There's a time for that, but you want to make sure you have your ducks in a row. I mean, really have everything prepared and know exactly what you're going to do. Even if you do hit a hurdle or a hiccup, 
you got to have that plan in place because when you start talking to investors, especially more sophisticated investors, they will call you out on that and you will have a lot of trouble. So I highly recommend, you know, being organized, like pretty much having the next year planned out, especially when it comes to your launch and how you're going to acquire customers. Extremely important to have that all set up. Do you think it's getting harder now too? Because the capital's tightening up a little bit and, and people want to see more data that supports getting to profitability or really that you have a good understanding of your cost of goods as you scale, like it feels like it's getting harder now. Yeah. I mean, profitability is definitely more in focus now than it was, let's say last year where growth at all costs was still very, very popular. So I say investors are asking more about unit economics more than ever. And having a grasp around that is important, but also, you know, on the capital standpoint, what I've noticed is paradox where in my syndicate investor life, I'm seeing you know people hesitant to deploy capital. But on the startup side, while I'm raising capital for my own company, I'm noticing that it's it's really not as tight as you know media says it is. That's uh, and I'm, yeah, and my thought on that is it's probably because of the stage that we're in. You yeah. know, I think this is a good time for pre-seed and seed stage companies. You know, his you say that though, like, why do you actually think that is? Because you just said it was the riskiest place to invest, right? It is. So why is it easier then? Because it's just less money in general? Well, it is a lower dollar amount for sure. Yeah. But because you're starting, you know, in this economic environment, you know, chances are when you get to that growth part of your life cycle, things might be a lot better. And yeah. like I said, at the beginning timing is everything. And, you know, historically, some of the best companies in the world were built during recessions. I know that's true. And it's a really great point. And it's something that's really interesting to think about as someone who's starting a brand or at the early stages, because if you can start a brand in this climate, I think your chances of being successful are much higher than if you start a brand when everyone can start a brand and there's money flowing everywhere. You don't have to prove anything. Yeah, I think it's interesting. How important has data been for you guys as you go out and try to get distribution? Very important. Data in alcohol in particular, it's everywhere, but it does differ. And for us with RTDs, you know, with that being such a new category, there isn't a ton of data on RTDs yet. And with us too, what a lot of investors ask is, how does the coffee market fit in? How do you get the coffee customers? Mm -hmm. And how do you kind of combine that Starbucks or RTD coffee customer with your RTD alcohol product in that growing market. It's a very difficult thing to do, but the best way we explain it is our customer is the Starbucks customer that also drinks trendy beverages or trendy alcoholic beverages. And you can't put a number or a size on that, but you know, that's the best way that we explain it until that data becomes, you know, a little bit more clearer. And the, we also, you know, pay homage to the people that took a risk and did hard coffee. I do think hard coffee paved the way for us, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. Where do you want to be in two years with this brand? Nationwide. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In household name? Household name. I want Tribini to be synonymous with espresso martini. That's amazing. And so what's it going to take for you? Like, what do you, have you had a lot of challenges so far that you just had to find a way to push through? Is there anything specific you want to talk about on that front? 
You know, I think the biggest challenges that people don't expect getting into alcohol is how challenging the regulatory environment truly oh my is. Gosh. And, yes. you know, it's not just the jumping through hoops that you need to do to get there. It's the time and, you know, the red tape of the different people you need to work with, the different lawyers you need to work with. Every state has different rules and regulations, and you have to get smart about those things very yes. quickly. Yes. yes. I happen to work on a lot of and have worked on a lot of alcohol brands, and it is a huge challenge. There's so much regulation around how you market it what you can say where, and the state by state thing is totally crazy. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's cool that you decided to take it on. I mean, you obviously know what you got into. You're not flying completely blind, which a lot of people do when they get into the business, they're just visionaries and don't know what it takes. And then they're like, oh my God, this is really hard. What happens when you get to a place where it's really hard? What do you do to get yourself through it? I take a step back, you know, I look at the facts and then I think, you know, what are the alternatives? What are the costs associated with the alternatives? And is it worth staying on the current path that's currently challenged? Or is it worth venturing down a new path? And it's just not taking too long to make a decision, but just using your gut and your best judgment to make that decision to get to the next step. Who do you go to for advice? <laughs> really no one. Really? really no one. I know it sounds odd, but I really have been, you know, solving problems by myself for a really long time. And I'm just so used to it at this point. You know, sometimes I will go to other founders, their brains yes. that may have been in a spot like that I could be in, in that certain moment. But for the most part, I just figure things out for myself. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to be working so far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So far. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like you have a lot of energy. It sounds like you need it because you're doing a lot of stuff at the same yeah. time. Yep. Yeah. There's never not enough things to do. That's for sure. I'm I'd like sure. to stay. I'm sure it sounds like it. So before we wrap up, I really appreciate your time, but is there anything else you want to share? Like, is there something you're like, you have to know this about either this brand or my journey or something else that you want people who are on the journey that similar to you to know? Yeah. You know, I'll take a step back and just talk about the, you know, the venture capital landscape yeah. and CPG yeah. right now, you know, something that kind of happened by accident is, you know, Cedar Capital's portfolio so far has turned up to be, you know, 80% diversity investments, you know, wow. all either female founders or people of color. And I didn't realize it until I wrote my year end review. And I was like, wow, I think the, you know, things are really changing in the venture world because in the past five to 10 years, those groups were, you know, disproportionately not receiving funding. I was just kind of shocked about that. And it's made me really think about how I continue to do things. And, you know, it's just truly a fallout of my process and, you know, identifying, you know, opportunities. So, you know, to any founders out there that, you know, feel like they can't qualify for funding or, you know, there's something about them or a characteristic that, you know, works against them. I want them to know that, you know, things are changing and that it's not going to last. I think that's really important. And I think it's a really great point because, you know, being a female founder myself, it is different. And if you even look at my guest list, it's still disproportionately men on the investment side and on the founder side. It's changing. I hear you, but it's not changing as quickly as I'm sure some people would like to see it. Change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's cool to know. And I think interesting. And if people want to reach out to you, are you open to, to people just saying, I want to talk to you about my brand? want to Get your Absolutely. Uh, message me on LinkedIn. I shouldn't be too hard to find there. 
And I you can, can attest also- to that. You're not too hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So that's probably the best place to reach me. And, you know, you can reach out to me if you're raising capital. You can yep. reach out to me if you need advice about your company or an issue that you're having, or if you just want to chat and grab coffee. You know, I'm happy to chat with people and learn more about, you know, what they're doing. Awesome. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate your time. And I think there's a lot of good stuff in here for our listeners. So thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.